0: episode of Climax the podcast: Love Letter to a Small Town. As always, I'll be your host. My name's Kevin Harvey, a proud 1998 graduate of Climax Scotts Junior Senior High School. Hopefully, this is a welcome back from folks who listened to Episode Eight, a deep dive into 4-H, hosted by Thea Taylor and Peggy Jenkins, interviewing Lydia Nickerson. That was the longest episode of the podcast to date, and we're going to take things in a little bit different direction with longer form interviews and a little bit more on that to come in this introduction. I know I say this every week, but hopefully this is a welcome back for everybody. And if it is, you know, we like to get the business done up front here on Climax the Podcast. Make sure to visit climaxthepodcast.com. That's where you're going to find all the ways you can listen to the show and truly find the one that works best for you. In fact, one of the easiest ways is just go to ClimaxThePodcast.com and there's a big button that hops up and down that says click here to listen. Ideally, we'd love to have everyone subscribe on whatever your favorite platform is. We're on Apple Podcasts, we're on Stitcher, Spotify, Google, Amazon, and just about any platform you can think of. All of those links are right there on ClimaxThePodcast.com. Also on ClimaxThePodcast.com, you're going to find the link to support this show As always, there's no guilt, there's no pressure. This show is always free to listen, but it is not a free show to produce. It's also not the most expensive show in the world to produce either. If you're in a spot, you're able, and you want to kick over a couple bucks, whether that's through buying any of our t-shirts there in the store at climaxthepodcast.com or clicking the donation button, anyone's support is more than welcome and more than appreciated. This is the time of the week when we thank all those who helped make this show possible, including my buddy, Kristen Wikoski, with State Farm. Insurance is a hard thing to shop for. It's not a particularly fun thing to think about. I mean, gosh, I've had situations in my life where I've had to utilize my auto insurance, my homeowner's insurance, but I'll tell you what made it easier. Having the right coverage, first of all, but also knowing the right people had my back. And I've known Kristen since we were kids, and I trust her implicitly with any insurance needs you may have. Kristen's office is on 20th Street in Battle Creek, just off the intersection of Columbia and 20th Street. She's right across the street from Ollie's, and she's behind Chicago Title. Look for those new big signs on her office right there on 20th Street. And if you have any needs in the realm of insurance, homeowners insurance or condo insurance, renters insurance, life insurance, business insurance, auto insurance, any of those things, give Kristen a call today, 269 968 5-1-3-0, or visit her website, callkristin.com. That's callkristin, dot com. And where would this show be without Prairie Historical Society? Several of the episodes in season one straight up would not have happened without the access and the research that we've been able to do thanks to the archives and the folks at PHS. For decades, Prairie Historical Society has documented the histories of the towns of Climax and Scotts. There's a whole world of great Climax history and information in the history room at Lawrence Memorial Library. And there's all sorts of news and education that you can get from their newsletter that they do six times a year. It's really easy to become a member of PHS. You can send your $15 annual payment to Prairie Historical Society, 107 North Main Street, P.O. Box 82, Climax, Michigan, 49034. And someone else I owe my thanks for the access to their archives and just for covering the news and all the events in town for so many years. It's time to show some love for my pals Bruce and Crystal Rolfe over at the Climax Crescent. The Climax Crescent for over a hundred years has been the quintessential source for news in the Climax Scots area. No matter where you are, no matter how far you are from Climax, you can still keep up to date with all goings on by way of the Climax Crescent. You can still get a subscription to the paper where we'll come to your mailbox every week. Now, if you don't necessarily want or need the printed copy, you can get the E edition of the Climax Crescent. You can subscribe annually to either the print or the digital or both right now today at theclimaxcrescent.com. I'll tell you what, if you're anything like me, living far from the town and Climax is very close to your heart, that E edition is a great way to keep up with everything that's going on in town. And now a couple updates on Climax the Podcast Live. I'm going to do an experiment in the very near future. We talked last week, and I've talked on the social media about using the Facebook group for live and interactive streams on Facebook.com. And I've made the decision that the planned season finale for season one, in perfect English, tributes to Mrs. Pierce, many people's anecdotes and just memories of one of the longest-tenured teachers in Climax Scott's history... Well, I want to try to do that as a live show. I've definitely heard from a few folks since the inception of the show, but I didn't quite get as many inputs or messages or voicemails and things as I was hoping for. But this is also a new show. We're all figuring out what the heck this is as we go along. I'm going to have some more information on when that's going to be really soon. I want to take a look at some of the town and school calendars and things going on. I want to try to put this at a time when I feel like the most people will be able to be on the feed live to ask their questions and share their stories of Ellen Pierce. And then Memorial Day and Founders Day weekend is coming up. It's, gosh, it's maybe two months away, but it's basically just around the corner at this point. Meet Me in the Middle, of course, happening. We've got our parade. We've got all our events. Julie Tiller and company have a whole smorgasbord of events going on in the middle of town. That's going down on Monday the 29th. On Sunday the 28th, we are going to have Climax the Podcast live, and I'm just about to the point where I can start letting some cats out of bags on that in terms of who it's going to be. I'm hoping to let everyone know more really soon. Now to circle back to something I said at the start of this week's episode, I want to talk about the length of last week's episode, and quite frankly, I just felt it was too long to put into one podcast, and that's to take nothing away from the fun, insightful, and entertaining conversation between Peggy, Theta, and Lydia. But podcasts have a tendency to just go too long. In my opinion, the sweet spot for a podcast is right about an hour, maybe a couple minutes on either side of that. But I am going to try my best to keep all podcasts right around that one-hour mark for everybody. I also heard similar from a few listeners of the show, so that's what we're going to take as a learn, and that's what we're going to do moving forward. Having said that, the unedited interview for this week's podcast is almost two hours in length. So this week is episode 9, that will be part 1 of this interview. Next week will be episode 10 with part 2. Full disclosure, I actually have not edited the interview yet. I'm actually recording the intros and outros before I go into editing the interview. It may not be the smoothest edit ever because I'm going to split the interview roughly at about halfway through the conversation, You'll hear the music fade out, and I'll be right back with the outros for this week. So this week will be part one. Next week will be part two. Next week, we'll do that cool weekly episodic television thing where I'll play you a little bit of last week on Climax the Podcast to help bring you right back where you were from the week before. But this will be broken into two parts. Hopefully, you're an easier listen and much easier to digest the information so it's not just two hours of story all at once. And on that note, it's time to segue to this week's main event. Now, the guest for this week and next week might have been my most requested person. I put out different feelers there on social media a few different times before the podcast started and after. And this was a name that came up on a lot of people's wish list. We try to please here on Climax the podcast, so here is making good on one of those requests. This week's guest is somebody who's been in Climax their whole life. To different people in town, this is a family member. To me, it's a family member. It's a friend. It's a neighbor, might be an army buddy, but to the majority of the listeners of this show, this is someone who has been teacher and coach. And if your ears are finely tuned, you will hear a few clips from Connie Weese's along the way in this episode, Season 1, Episode 9, Ever Spiffy, Ever Sporty, Part 1, with Bob Weese's Jr. All right, well, here we are on yet another exclusive interview on Climax, the podcast. And you may know him by several different names or monikers. You may know him as Bob. You may know him as Bobby, Robert, Jr., Coach, Mr. Weases. In any case, welcome a man that I call Uncle Bob, my Uncle Bob (laughs) Weases. And hi to you. (laughs) It's good to be uh, be here. Did i miss any monikers i feel like i maybe missed one or two
1: <laughs> there from the years um Papa. first first sergeant. <laughs> yep, first sergeant the first sergeant thing that was uh, 22 years in the army reserve which wasn't easy to do but really really glad that we did it which i mean it's not just a commitment for the person that serves but you know, there's a price to be paid for, you know, your significant other, you know, raising, raising the kids when you're gone. And uh, it was, it was something I'm really glad, really glad I did. And I, and I do miss those military people because I did have a chance to serve with some, with some really good, good people. But I, of course, went in as an E1 and Because I had the education, you know, I could have gone to officers candidate school, but I was quite attached to the civil preparedness idea of helping the civilian population in time of natural disaster or, you know, a military disaster, which fortunately we didn't have to respond to that, but
0: well, there were definitely a couple of scares over the years of yeah. response. I mean, I remember being distraught as a ten-year-old kid when Desert Shield and Desert Storm became a thing because my first thought was, "Does that mean Uncle Bob's going to war?" Yeah, yeah,
1: and it could have, but it just it just didn't go it just didn't go that way, but anyway that that was a factor um went to Kellogg Community College that was two years and that was a little bit about my sister Sharon and I going in the same vehicle to to junior college every day the idea i kind of saw myself as someday being a teacher and a coach i uh, pursued that you know at kcc then at western uh, for the the last two years but the coaching started um, i coached summer baseball one of those years a connie mack team and that's kind of a long story why it was asked, um, uh, but it was asked to coach the young men. And it was, it was really fun, but it was a, it was a busy summer because it was, you know, work and school and, but anyway, it, it became known to Climax Guts High School that, you know, that I was interested in coaching and, you know, even even that first year um, of summer ball, that was, you know, more than a success. We were really pleased. So in, uh, in my first year of, um, of Western, uh, the principal, uh, Bill Penny that, you know, was aware that I had done the baseball thing. They had a ninth grade basketball coaching position that uh, they wanted to fill and they had me in mind and I I went in and talked to them about it and sure enough I got that job and that was that was fun made some lifetime friends on on that particular team. And then it was wrap up the senior year again while working at uh, Dreamers Furniture Sharon had uh, had since graduated from our nursing program at KCC, so we didn't have the share a ride program going anymore. <laughs> the bus route stopped running. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, that's that's how that started, and I I really didn't have you know climax gods in my sights. You know, once I had my degree in uh, in physical education but the elementary PE job was posted and they knew of me and said you know why don't you apply for this okay I will so put the application in and Lo and behold, I was hired for that. It's the first time they had a full-time position. It was a shared position between the two elementary schools, Climax and Scott's, and they needed a JV football coach. And okay, so I said, all right, I'll do it. And then I was on that staff and enjoyed that, but I'm in I think the second week of football and um, my draft notice comes and then I'm told to report by October 12th of 1972 my plan at that point was you know my goodness what what can I do to get my my first year of teaching in uh, before I go to a basic training or some kind of active duty assignment So I looked around and I, I happened to find um, an organization in Battle Creek that was operating out of the federal center 5004 Civil preparedness support detachment and they said we want you but you can't go you know for basic training because we need to delay you because you'll need a security clearance to go to your advanced individual training assignment so we'll have you you'll drill with us and when you can get a slot once your clearance is in you'll go so anyway I went for basic training August 3rd in 1973 but that let me get the first year of teaching in and coaching did the football thing? That was that was fun. I think they had a good time. We had a winning record. Then I had another group of uh, basketball players. Right, that's how that went on. Yeah. One well, that I a, it is a number of years ago. <laughs> We're,
0: well, don't worry, I'm sure my mother will correct any dates that are wrong yeah. anywhere in here. I think every episode I get yeah. a, a page of notes about, no, the school's merged on this yeah. date, the the new high school opened this date.
1: Yeah. The very end of my senior year, Connie and I were engaged, but we were married the end of my senior year, um, April 22nd of seventy two. We've been married 50 years, and it's going to be 51 in a couple months.
0: Well, something that I don't know that a lot of, I would say, people maybe my age or younger necessarily understand is that you both, actually, your whole life history is in Climax and the Climax got (laughs) schools. I don't know that everybody necessarily knows that, that you are, I don't even know, God, how many generations deep into (laughs) uh, Climax here. But you you grew up within the CS school system, even a little bit before it was CS school system, right? Or was it Climax Scots the whole time by the time you were in school? It was
1: Climax Scots the whole time. And the buildings moved around, the building assignment where you'd go moved around and it was developing. Um, The baby boomers were coming into school, that is the after World War II babies, which there was, quite a few of us.
0: And you were one of the very first classes that actually would have had all four years in the current high school as well. You know, you were... Because I think the first group that was in there all four years was probably my mom's class, if not darn before, or if not, I'll get my correction notes from Sharon on that one.
1: Yeah, to do the, to do the whole thing, I, I think like the weight room in which was the shop and the bus garage is where the superintendent's office is now um that was built in 1952 and the elementary school was you know disconnected and on the north side of what was the shop and then the high school itself and the gymnasium um, 1959 I think that's what was on the the cornerstone I don't know where that cornerstone was taken off in the in the latest building project but there have been a number of different add-ons and improvements that they've made but the baseball was field itself, uh, before the school was there, was established in 1947, and lights were done. Uh, Lights were also done around an Athens softball field in that same year, and there are clippings, you know, coverage of those two. Baseball and softball were just huge in those days. Uh, Climax had um, sometimes, you know, two different teams that uh, played what was travel ball and league ball in Battle Creek. Battle Creek was kind of a mecca at that time for amateur baseball. Well, I just
0: learned yesterday, uh, I was talking to Dwayne Jr. about how big of a deal the night games were when those lights first went in and just the huge amounts of crowds for local baseball.
1: Yeah. Um, When I played high school baseball, it was a big event. I mean, we only played 10 or 11 games, so you'd have five or six at home. You know, the lights are on, and everybody came concession stand that was, you know, very, very busy. Concession concession, concession stand next to the field. So the concessioners could, you know, see the game too. Just yeah, the, that, that, was, that was a good time, but you know, the rules in the state have changed. Um, uh, when I started coaching you could have 16 baseball playing dates and then it gradually, you know, changed and they changed to 18 and then they allowed you to go up to 22 and then they went to 28 and I, I think they're unlimited. But when you're unlimited you have to have a very large pitching staff because their pitching limitation rules that you know, uh, protect the pitchers. You just, you just have to.
0: Oh yes. Well, especially kids, they're still growing, their bodies are still changing. There's so many factors there of, you can only beat up a kid so much on the field. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's just, I had a chance to see some abuses, you know, through the years. We would, we tried to monitor how many, not only how many pitches our guys were throwing, but you know, for the opponents as well. Yeah. So, let's see. Well,
0: and just and then, not even, talking about the transitions of the game and the amount of games, I mean, and if I may stroke your ego for a minute, I mean, there's very good reason your name is quite literally tacked to the field <laughs> that I'm looking at across the street here. But the field itself underwent a lot of changes yeah, over the years.
1: Really, a lot of changes. It it was um, pretty basic, you know, in the old playing days. In oh, there was a, a club that organized, and I think it's like seventy seventy one. It was a number of uh, baby boomer type parents that looked at it and decided we could do better and our project was was overtaken to level field because in the 50s and 60s it was very slanted uphill toward right field but basically home plate isn't isn't in the exact same place the backstop is in part the backstop that was put in in 1947.
0: Um- And then was it the outfield that went down four feet or so from what it
1: once was? Right field had to go down four feet and that dirt was moved to home plate home plate and the infield were raised depending on the location about three feet and that you know it was it was spread out then um, the, And that was decided before the, I believe, 71 football season. It was a summer project that sod would be brought in. Um, A number of long trailers came in and offloaded their pallets. And then the community, including myself and I did not head up the project. I was just, you know, one of the many that uh, carried and put down sod. My, my greatest interest, you know, was to work in the infield. That's where I spent most of my time. Um, the Legionnaires that were, many of the Legionnaires were involved in that. Um, Max Greenman was you know, a a real leader in that. Jim Longman was a real leader. Jim was not a Legion member. Um, but that was... They knew I had some particular insights and, you know, been on a lot of baseball fields and, you know, how do we do this? How do we do that? And, you know, I got to Help them in the initial layout of that. But yeah, that was really a big community thing. I mean, the lights were turned on and people carried and carried. And I mean, that's, it was not done. I mean, yeah, there were some, there were some trucks or tractors that, that moved some of the pallets to locations, but all of it was hand laid all of it was hand laid in small rolls of like 18 inches by 5 feet and all those pieces had to be married up and a sprinkler system was put in it wasn't exactly state-of-the-art but it was all that could be afforded with two dragging trains that would drag themselves along on ropes and Little did I know that quite a bit of my life would be spent later on adjusting those hoses and (laughs) and moving those sprinkler systems to, to keep the ball field alive because at that time it was it was planned and executed that the center from right field to left field would be the football field as well yep, I'm I am old enough to remember that yes and center field bleachers were where the home football bleachers would be mm-hmm. and there was of course a press box there and I got to know all of that very well because I got to tear it down because in at night in 93 um may have been 92 there was there was a project to establish uh, the track and football field uh, back adjacent to the parking lot for the intermediate school which Mm -hmm. was which was built in the 72 year for the 72 73 school year
0: Yeah, 93 sounds about right because, you know, your daughter, Sarah, my cousin, Sarah, she was a class of 93. And I'm trying to remember, were they the last class to only play on the center field field or was their senior year on the stadium? I think it was the next year that um, Panther Stadium came in. Yeah, so, 93, year, 94. Yeah. That's what yeah, I was, because I yeah, thought
1: I remembered watching right. Jason Lawrence. Which and... was 72. <laughs> Or not 72 but 92 92 for the graduating class of 93 so yeah that's it has to be the way that was
0: yeah but it's just then even thinking of the baseball field i'm old enough to remember when those dugouts were not nearly the dugouts that they <laughs> were currently that was probably a yeah. about that same time frame project uh, when wasn't I, that early when
1: 90s I, when i played we had benches inside the fencing, which was like chicken fence, but <laughs> that's that's what was put in in 1947, and we we didn't think, you know, anything of it to be inside the fence, sitting on a bench. Um, we also didn't think anything about. You know, batting without a helmet on. We we'll grab your cloth cap and and go bad. And then, you know, we got to have a little bit of in cap protection. They had a little bit of padding, and we put those inserts inside our cloth cap. And we thought, wow, we're really protected now. <laughs> well, even but in that's that's <laughs> in the 60s. Well, even in
0: that day, too, if you look at a, even just look at a football team helmet, and the, or the, a football team picture, and the helmets or more lack oh, thereof dear. in those days. In yeah, fact, football
1: helmets in those days were really dangerous.
0: Well, in fact, uh, the very reason I was never allowed to play football, and why my mother told me at a young age I will never sign the permission slip, was a bell ringer that you got from said not-so-protective f- football
1: helmets. Well... I didn't even you know get a, a new I got a used football helmet but it was uh, it was called a recon helmet I said well what's what's a recon helmet and it's well it's gone in for reconditioning that means we've added a patch here and a patch there with um, metal and a rivet and then did a little paint job on the outside and made it look like new. <laughs> anyway, I had that, you know, and and really had no no problem with it until my head hit the hard ground on a play and man, I was out. I was I was knocked out and and truly, I mean there I have Memories of coming to uh, Like when I was in the locker room and they took the shoulder pads off I, You know, I, I had a little flash of consciousness there and then I had another flash of consciousness uh, During the ambulance ride to the hospital but the The kind of thing that that put my sister into negative reaction was a nice way of, (laughs) she was concerned, but, but man, I was, um, I was knocked out and not put on a stretcher, but two coaches dragged me (laughs) off the field with, you know, my legs and my toes out to the (laughs) rear. (laughs) And... She wasn't a nurse at that time, but she had the nurse and doctoring instinct, and she was appalled.
0: Well, I mean, even you saying that today, I'm sure there's people that maybe have kids currently in the football program where we've got, I would imagine, at least one, if not two, ambulances on site, full EMT crews and yeah. cervical collars and things that you just assume are, this is par for the course yeah. now. But in those days, it was literal like, eh, he's still breathing, drag him off the field, it's fine. Yeah.
1: The football helmets now are so much better than they were in those days. It's just, it's. I wish I'd been able to keep one of those just to just to show people. I mean they, they were kind of like um, a construction worker would wear with a band around the head and a little bit of. You know, padding on the top. They they were not much more than that.
0: Because I was trying to remember if you were, but they, they were you know, past the leather helmets by that. Point. Yeah,
1: yeah, they were they were into plastics and um, some were foam lined, and the foam lined ones actually did a little bit better than the ones that were made like construction worker helmets, but. It's absolutely amazing that there weren't more guys knocked out. Uh, There were guys that, you know, would get their bell rung and, you know, go back to the huddle and, (laughs) you know, and be woozy and then, you know, I don't have any statistics,
0: I mean, there's just so many things like that well what if we knew then what we knew now but i mean gosh that's almost everything in yeah. the world that comes with age yeah. and wisdom yeah <laughs> and yeah the gift of
1: hindsight being 2020 they really have have researched and the national football league you know is is really i mean they've almost been forced into you know doing the research but you know they have state-of-the-art, the the colleges, you know, the pressure, the pressure was, has been on for some time. You need to do something about this, you know, because people are getting their bell rung, and the lifetime. um, There are a number of uh, football players, NFL football players, that have gone to early onset dementia, you know, just because of, well, boxing to him guys okay. you know getting knocked out and um, real example of that is Muhammad Ali and some people in my age could even remember Miss Cassius Clay but Muhammad Ali suffered from early Parkinson's and well that's a that's a sad story but anyway well we the family kind of over reacted negatively. Um, My dad loved his football. Yes, he did. And, uh, (laughs) uh, of course, I was not witness to his football career, but he was an excellent football player and became a real football, a real football fan, lifetime football fan.
0: Well, for better or worse, and in his later years, often worse, diehard Lions fan. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah. He's, he suffered a lot of years. Well, Kyle and I were
0: joking recently, and I, well, most listeners should know this, I would assume, but Kyle, the youngest son of Coach Wiesis, uh, we were joking about how we're both starting to develop the left-hand twitch a little bit that your dad had when he would get really into something or watching the Lions yeah. or making an emphatic point. Yeah, I just asked him a couple weeks ago, I'm like, he started to get the Grandpa Easy's left-hand twitch.
1: He's like, "Oh my well, God, with, I think I am too." With Dad, it was more than that. He on on certain plays, he'd be so involved that he would be up in his seat and and, and lean forward like he was. He, he lived it. He he loved it. Well,
0: and no, no more than fifty percent of his butt would be on a chair at, at any given time when he was it, watching
1: a game. It was more fun to watch him watch a game than it was to watch the game itself,
0: and then the the various <laughs> the various verbals that came with that too. Not all of them yeah. necessarily podcast friendly, yes. but
1: y'all
0: yeah. can use your imaginations on yeah. that one. Yeah.
1: But yeah, he was he was very wrapped up. I mean. But he didn't get to experience the the ESPN world now. I mean, (laughs) he could have replayed all the games.
0: Record a game, avoid all radio (laughs) and television, avoid all the spoilers. Come home for the pure experience. Now, at what point, uh, because I know the memories for you as a teacher, for most people around my age bracket... Uh, you were doing essentially dual duty at that point. You would be at the intermediate school for a part of the day, the elementary school for a part of the day. Around what time was when we had now Climax Scott's elementary? Because that's my memory. Is My entirety of CS was um, CS elementary, CS intermediate.
1: The, the younger kids... Oh, what gear was it? It, it? jeff was Jeff was one of the first groups that were consolidated when the Scots kids and the climax kids were were brought together at the intermediate school. and then the elementary kids were bused to Scots. Mm-hmm. So it was K through. K like through 4
0: for most K of that time K through 4
1: and then at some point it, it changed to K through 3 and then four, five, six were done at the intermediate school yeah the the, the the consolidation was probably a good idea you know so there wasn't so much thinking of Scott's kids get to do this and Climax kids don't get to do it and
0: I'm pretty sure my class was the very last class of climax kindergarten we still had Patty Pittman was teaching kindergarten up here um, at the intermediate school and then Margaret Postumus was teaching Scots and I believe the class of 98 was the last ones to have that duality because the next year I believe Patty Pittman went to do young fives at the elementary and then Margaret had the AM PM kindergarten
1: yes I think that's right
0: I think that's right My class had a lot of Um, weird transitions because we were the last to have the Climax Kindergarten. And then we were the first to go to the... They added the modular classrooms for fourth grade because the class sizes were so much bigger in the elementary. Mm -hmm. So we had, at that point, Mary Carl and uh, Brad Wyant Mm -hmm. for fourth grade teachers. And then we were the first group to have... Um, seventh grade we were still in the intermediate but then when it became junior senior high school at that time seventh and eighth grade but anyway we cut that cake like we had mr Weese's for, for gym class yeah. for almost every phase of that until we got to the high school part
1: yeah that's that's how it went um, there were years that due to schedule i'd have seventh graders as well
0: I remember there were just a lot of days where it would be... I think most of my schooling, it would be you'd have the morning at the intermediate school and then
1: afternoon... Because the day started earlier. You know, class was able to start it. it just after 8, um, when the elementary kids were still on the bus. And it's it's similar to that now.
0: One, one thing I'd love to dive into with just the with elementary phys ed just the with your teaching the word innovation jumps to the front of my mind and even just one recent example that I don't know if I've shared this with you yet or not but there was a not too long ago a I don't know if viral's the right word but there was a TikTok or a YouTube video about that was essentially recognizing a modern physical education teacher and something they were doing that the kids loved and it was so innovative and I sent it to Kyle and said well, this is on the cutting edge of 1984, <laughs> but it was they were using the scooters, yeah. the infamous scooters. And you, where did the scooters kind of enter your mind? Because for so many my age, I know that's like one of our favorite memories of elementary school PE, but that's something that you innovated a long, long
1: time ago. The, uh, yeah, right from the beginning. Um, I knew I didn't want to have shared time. And at first, what it, we had to... In the first years, we had to share because they simply didn't have enough. But my objective was have enough in good working order so everyone in a class could have a scooter. Um, upper body strength, targeting upper body strength is, is something that you have to do. And at some point, getting kids in tune with doing some form of push up for arm and shoulder development chest development that really is what it was about but you know some of the scooter moves were just fun for kids to do and having activities that kids would look forward to was kind of what I was interested in I wanted uh, gym class to be you know number one fun and valuable and um, not just in a strength way but cardiorespiratory way Um, I tried to do evaluations of testing I you know I tested you know right from year one but most of that had to do with fourth, fifth, and sixth graders. Um, I would just do, you know, informal evaluations of how our strength was, but strength was tested and recorded, and that let me know where my where my program was was weak. If if our push-up scores were really low. I mean, they just indicated I needed to do, you know, some more upper body, but, you yeah, know, that's, that's how that got started. Um, then at some point when everyone was able to have a scooter or a four wheel roller, then we we would do rollouts and roll backs. And that was all about upper body strength. But you know, when you roll, when you go out and come back, it engages the abdominals. And in some case, some people would say not fun to do, but I would say, you know, that was a gas to, mm-hmm. <laughs> to roll out and do an inchworm type activity.
0: Oh, and then it'd be, then the big reward at the end would we get to play crocodile. Get to do the crocodile and play a variant of uh, freeze
1: tag on the yeah, scooters too, and, and chase someone around and touch their shoe. And <laughs> you know, you touch your shoe, touch their shoe, and you need to raise your hand. And if you could uh, make a touch, and you had your hand raised, that let the runaway person pick the next runaway person from the successful. <laughs> Touchers. Yeah. That was fun. That was fun stuff.
0: Well, in so many ways that you did the physical education, as an adult, I can look back and go, okay, here's the business of why we did that. But there was always different systems of recognition and reward. And it could be something as simple as uh, how many squares of elect- different colored electrical tape did you give to put on the pant leg over the years? Or 20-20 clubs, 50-50 clubs yeah. where... The way those basically went were, you know, a lot of your, say, more average kids might do, oh, we got a 20-20, like 20 push-ups, 20 sit-ups or pull-ups. And then you get the farm kids in there and they'd be in like the 100-100 club because <laughs> they yeah. had farm strength.
1: Yeah. Um, um, I had some clubs like, yeah you know, the 20-20 the club or um, the 30 push-up club or climb the rope club. And then, you know, it was climb the rope and get your name on a little card on the, on the wall. Some kids really like that. Mm -hmm. Um, We did the same thing with pegboard. If we had a, a person make it to the top of the pegboard, they got their, their name. And an arrow pointed up, and if you could also go up and come back down, you'd get an up arrow and a down arrow. And that got pretty competitive, but safe. You know, we always when we did the paper board, we always had mats, you know, underneath because at some point you're coming down, yeah, and you want to have a soft landing. I said, we have to have soft landings nobody needs to get hurt
0: I'll tell you that uh, we've talked about the evolution of you know, physical protective equipment something in that modern video that I don't know how I feel about it their scooters had finger guards on them it's like well if you can't mash your fingers in the wall you're taking out part of the, the education of don't do that and you won't mash your fingers into the yeah. wall
1: uh, kids were quite good The rock climbing uh, came about and I can't remember the exact year that traversing the the rock walls. but again that was an effort to develop the whole body but especially the hand and arm strength and it's I you'll see on TV kids be strapped up on a rope and they'll climb straight up. That's not what we did. We would go from left side of the room to the right side of the room, one rock at a time, one step at a time. That was fun. That was a, that was a fun era. <laughs> when I started, I had so little equipment. one box of things and half of the things weren't worth keeping uh, utility balls mm-hmm. a few basketballs but the program just didn't exist before me it was yeah. you know kind of a part time yeah but i was i was the first full-time elementary physical educator in 72 and 73, and it all kind of happened by somebody's design, not my own. I don't, I don't know. It was just... And then I liked it stayed, you know, the baseball thing happened and one year and then another year and another (laughs) year and Before long, it's, you know, 37 years.
0: Well, what was the first year as the head baseball
1: coach for the high school team? 1976. But I had contact with, you know, some of those boys in summer play that had nothing to do with the school. Mm -hmm. It was just, you know, get the guys a baseball experience. Um,
0: There's so many different ways too. I, I mean, there was Legion ball, there was Connie Mack and things over yeah. in the Battle Creek ecosystem of baseball. Yeah. A lot of different ways he could get the kids their reps. And
1: the American Legion was just phenomenal in those days, sponsoring teams. Mm-hmm. And um, Little League teams, Then intermediates, which the intermediates were junior high aged. And in some, not every year, but in a a lot of years, especially the 60s, they did uh, Connie Mack, which were high school agers.
0: I remember, I think every baseball team I ever played on was a Legion-sponsored team or part yes. of that program because that was mm-hmm. like yes. the Climax Legion was part of it. There was Richland was a part of that. I think there were some Galesburg uh, organizations that were part of that. So it was basically only probably three to five communities overall, but we would have one or two Climax teams per grade per grade
1: group. Um, we did that... Um, some of the guys just before you, uh, were in a Lakeview league for, I mean, some leagues look for teams to fill out. I mean, they need other teams, you know, so there's gonna be competition, but, you know, in some of the years, kids were, were playing in Battle Creek leagues. Especially the ones at uh, at the high school level. But it, it kind of went to this, uh, the country play for a few years, but way back, that didn't exist. And CS kids, you know, were playing in the 50s and 60s one or two teams in Battle Creek Leagues, and playing at, uh, Bailey Park.
0: And Bailey Park's still going strong with all the fields over there. I'm trying to think of all the fields, and Co Brown Stadium's the big one. That,
1: that really has been rebuilt. Um, you know, in the old days, it was it was Bailey Stadium, and Bailey Stadium was built as a work project uh after the depression so it it really goes back some years but how the fields and there were many fields um like there are three full-size baseball fields and a lot of softball and little league fields now but at one time there were more full-size baseball Mm -hmm. there were at least two more and there might have been three more because uh, there was the demand you know for the fields only one lighted in the 40s and 50s and 60s and that was uh, that was bailey stadium and then somewhere you know, they decided to, uh, to go with the, the you know, the C.O. Brown as it is now, and that took the place of the original Bailey Stadium, which was bricked and it had bathrooms and, and locker rooms, the old Bailey Stadium did, and it was, it was kind of a mecca and it, it hosted national level amateur mm-hmm. baseball tournaments and then it was done at C.O. Brown and and Nicholson Morrison. Uh, Which, you know, that's a tremendous history unto itself. That's uh, one of the things that that uh, Bath Creek organization decided to do in 2007 was to name me to their um, wall of fame, Mm -hmm. which, you know, what an honor for a little kid that, you know, played his first 10 year old baseball games, you know, on that facility, you know, to go through all those years of, of being there with, in the playing days, plus know the coaching days you know to receive that honor that was that was a big deal you know that was humbling uh, bringing tear to your eye well and in addition to that michigan state high
0: school coaches hall of fame as well right wasn't um, that a little bit that, earlier or yeah, am i confusing that, that with the CO that Brown? was
1: earlier that was earlier that was 1998 and That was the last year, which I I wasn't sure it was going to be, but um, after our son Kyle, you know, graduated, it was then important to get to his college games and not be coaching high school game and, and miss that. So then I I said goodbye to that, but the Michigan High School Baseball Coaches Association. Um, nominated me and I was inducted uh, in Detroit and had an opportunity to coach the east and west all-star baseball game I got to coach the west team which is basically kids out state at Tiger Stadium
0: the old Tiger Stadium yep before what is it now Comerica Park or is it it moved on from Comerica Park (laughs) This living, it, not yeah, living it, in Michigan, twenty yeah, years thing it, is. It might have another name,
1: but I think it's still Comerica Park. Um, but
0: worth diving into. I mean, with, with all the coaching and so many different accolades and so many people that know you as coach from your days as coaching CS. Now the the big the big highlights so we had the state championship was what
1: years? Was that eighty Se- four? Seventy five. 76 and 84. Okay. And then runner-up in 90 or 90, 91? 90. Um, num- it Things just have to fall right for your team. I've, you know, I've had some other very talented teams, and you know, the way baseball is, a pass ball here, a wild pitch there you know, a blooper over the second baseman's head and you know, you lose to another very talented team, you know, and they go on. Um, In, um, in 76, we're at the semifinal level, but the way the draw was, Caseville in the other bracket had the pitcher of the state that year who was an incredible talent and they played a team from Potterville and they won a one nothing ball game and the Caseville kid had to pitch all seven innings you know to get the win. And he would have beaten us, too. He was, he was something very special. So we won the semifinal game against Maple City Glen Lake, and that was a tight comeback game, but we were able to survive. And then we had to play Caseville in the final. But the Caseville pitcher, instead of the draw going, the draw went for us because he had three innings of pitching left. Mm, Gotcha. So their number two, their number two pitcher was was not able to hold us. A distant second place pitcher. But (laughs) but he, he, he's... His talent was incredible, but that that's just the way it goes. And, and poor Potterville, who had a very, very good team, you know, got no hit, and their season's over. But that same kid, in a few weeks after that, he signed with the Phillies and, you know, had a minor league pitching career. <laughs> ¶¶
0: You know, this is usually the part where I thank the guests, but do I still do that? Because we're only like halfway through the interview. Of of course, I've still got to say thanks. Thank you very much to my Uncle Bob, Bob Wiese's Jr., for this week and everything you're going to get next week, too. From the bottom of my heart, thank you for listening to this show. Whether this is your first time or your ninth time, this show does not exist without great listeners like you. Thank you for everything you do each week. Listening to the show... Liking the show, sharing the show, leaving a review on any of our feeds, all of these things help those little algorithms out there that kind of determine who sees what or hears what on the internet. Thank you for all you do to help get people's eyes and ears on this love letter to a small town. You already know what's coming up next week, part two with Bob Wiese's Jr. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'll talk to you in about a week.